right, good morning, church. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Matthew 5, verses 21 through 37. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then, come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need say is simply yes, or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Well, that passage is uh, quite a doozy, isn't it? I don't uh, always feel the need to personally check in before uh, doing a certain passage, but every once in a while there is a passage. The fun ones are the ones where you read a passage and you go, man, I remember when that passage opened something up for me in the way I say, oh God, help me transform a new way. I love those. And then there's some like this. I mean, it's just a hard passage, I think, no matter where you're coming at it from. But this actually represents pain for me <laughs> um, because it takes me back to my upbringing. Um, y- you'll hear me say, and that's because I believe this to the very core of my being, you'll often hear me say, the most important thing someone can know about you is what you think about God. Uh, I really do believe whether somebody verbalizes it or not, we all have a conception that's evolving, but we have a conception of who God is. And how you think about God will shape how you do everything, right? Like if you think of God as a very disinterested and passive God who's uninvolved in the affairs of the world, that's inevitably going to shape the way you live, right? Um, for me, how I grew up, this is not, I think this, I've been healed from this, but I come back to this very easy. How I grew up, and I, I realize it's not everybody's story, but how I grew up was coming to understand God, and this was specifically instilled into me. This was an accidental. I came to understand God, A, as a rule God, a, a God of rules and commands, that this was kind of central to the character of God, that the Ten Commandments in so many ways was the iconic expression of God in the world, that that's what God, the cosmic deity does. It says, here's the commands I have for you. 
here's the rules I have for you, how you are to live. And then that's kind of God's job is to keep us living as best as we can towards those rules. Um, blessing us is kind of how I came to think of it. Blessing us when we keep the rules. I often, I, I think I had a deep kind of Christian version of karma that if things are going good, it's because you're keeping the rules. If things are going bad, it's because you're breaking the rules. And um, uh, th- this is kind of how I fundamentally thought of God, that God is somewhere between disappointed and angry when I break the rules. And um, to some degree or another is going to usually punish me for breaking the rules. So do your best you can to not break the rules so you don't get punished. Do your best to do good things so you get blessed. Somehow grace was in the mix of all this, the Christian. But how I came to understand grace growing up was simply the fact that you're always a sinner, always screwing up. But for somehow in God's mercy, you're not going to go to hell for it if you pray to God asking for forgiveness and um, just hope that <laughs> the accumulation of all the rules you broke and get covered by this grace. All right, so that was already was being instilled. So this passage specifically, this is what it took it over the edge for me. Um, because what I heard when I heard this passage is not only is God, <laughs> you know, and I shouldn't know this, but from my bad days, you know, there's different forms of felonies. There's like a class A felony, class B felony, class C felony, right? I, I kind of saw it as, this is kind of how God sees us, that there's like the class A felons who are like just outrightly breaking the Ten Commandments and they're going to get the harshest of all. But what this passage I thought was teaching us is that even if you think you're not a class A felon, you're going to for sure be a class B or a class C felon because, you know, maybe you're not murder, maybe you're not breaking that Ten Commandment. But if you've ever had an angry thought, well, might as well be a class B, class A felon, right? Maybe you didn't actually commit adultery, but if you even lust after a woman, you're in the same kind of category. So really... It not only reinforced the view I had of God, it actually kind of doubled down on it. That it, I just kind of lived with this sense that, you know, the choice before us is it going to be a class A disappointment or a class B disappointment. <laughs> uh, but that's what that's what will always be true. So you just, I don't know, you just kind of makes you just kind of live life, know, you know, trying to live as best you can, knowing that you're falling short in either big ways or not as big ways, um, and then hope that God's grace covers it all. And that's, that is, that is big time. How I saw God was big time shaped by this passage. I, I mean, I can viscerally go back to hearing this and hearing sermons on this of just how deep our kind of fallenness goes. <clears throat> it's a story. I don't know if it's funny. It's funny to me just because you remember these key moments. But, you know, so for me, uh, during high school and college, you know, so I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor. Um, so during high school and college, I wanted nothing to do. I, I really, if I, I, this is a bad word, it's like I hated this God. I, I, I believed in this God. I feared this God, um, but I really did not like this God. So I did my best to stay away from this God as much as possible. The way I kind of always thought of it is that, look, I'm already, I'm already screw up anyway. I'm already going to hell without God anyway. So the way I thought of it, because we, we, it was a real big part of our upbringing to say the sinner's prayer regularly. You know, where you confess of your sin and ask Jesus to save you. So I prayed that every single day, even as I was trying to avoid this God with everything in me. And I just really hoped that I could kind of live my life and maybe live it as badly as I could and just have enough time to pray before the final moment to, you know, square the account again, you know. So this would be terrifying at youth retreat. I'm thinking of our youth away right now. I hope they're not hearing this. At our youth retreats, we used to always hear if the bus, if the if the church van crashes on the way home, you know, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? You know, I'm like, oh, I'm not sure. So I prayed again with everything I have in me. Um, hope for that. So here's the moment where I'm thinking. So it was 22 when I started coming back to faith where, where you know, the, there's a 20-something ministry at this church that where I was working by. And so that's their approach, the way they talked about it, helped kind of open some things up. But I was still very much in flux, you know, this 
kind of angry rules-based God, but still feeling God calling me back to God's self, trying to make sense of that. So even in my flux, I started getting very involved in this ministry and, you know, thanks be to God, they saw like leadership, pastoral potential even in me. And so it's 22, they started trying to cultivate that. So I don't know if this was, if this was just a gracious thing or if it was actually kind of a test a little bit, but they said, we would like you to lead a devotional for our church staff. Um, which I probably should have been more intimidated by that than I was. I just was like, oh, okay, cool. So they said, you can like literally do whatever you want to do for a devotional. <laughs> so I don't know, what would you, if you're going to lead, lead a devotional for a church, that would you do? I, I thought it'd be interesting to do Matthew 5 as the uh, <laughs> devotional um, because it's what I knew best about God at that time. And so I did a little talk for the staff of this ministry and the title of the talk was, was it was based on this passage, the, literally the one we just read. And the title of the talk was Zero Defect Living. Zero defect living that as committed Christians, we need to do everything we can to live without ever making mistakes. And so I use this passage talking about not only should you not murder, you should not actually have thoughts of that. Not only should you not, you know, operate outside of sex, outside of marriage, you shouldn't even have a thought about that. And, you know, I gave that and I kept coming to the zero defect living. You know where I got that phrase, zero defect living? It was from my dad, the pastor, pastor. And I don't say that to throw him under the bus. You know, that's, it's just, it's how we grew up. But like, that is what my dad used to always say to us. Try to live with zero defect living. Try to never make a mistake because God doesn't like it when you make mistakes. <laughs> so therefore, don't make mistakes. I mean, I, that's how I grew up. That is how I grew up. And when I read this passage, it brings me all the way back to that stuff. So I remember the staff guy afterwards saying, wow, zero defect living, huh? He's, How's that working out for you? I said, well... <laughs> Didn't not so good in high school and college, but I'm I'm back I'm back on the horse, man. I'm I'm, I'm shooting for zero defect living again. Just rubbed his temples in that way, where it's like you don't even know where to begin with the unwinding kind of process. All right, well we read the passage. Um, obviously that's not what I think of God anymore, and yet it still does kind of sound like what this passage is saying, doesn't it? So how how, how do we make sense of this? If I I'm going to be just kind of kind of personal in this one, I'm going to take you from one of the passages that was most painful to the passage that was most liberating for me, and. Um, um, if you're around for a while, you'll hear me come back to this one often. I try not to do it more than I should, but I actually, going back to this initial statement of what we think about God is the most important thing about us, I really do believe that there's like literally one passage in the New Testament that should be the starting point always when we think of who God is. Um, it's not that it's necessarily more important, but it is the most expansive description of who God is from Jesus himself, right? So, Jesus is sent by the Trinity into the flesh and then is describing to everybody what God is like, the fullness of who God is. And so that takes us to a parable that might be familiar if you grew up around this, but you just can't come back to it too often. You certainly need to be aware of the familiarity of it. The The parable of the prodigal sons is to me the most important passage about who God is. And it's what actually helped make sense of this passage. All right. So the the, the story, many of you know it. Uh, there's two big things that jumped out to me from this. And let me start with the first one because there's so much to be said. I've done five-week series on that parable because I just think it's so, so critical. Let me, let me zone in on two things. The first thing that was like this huge aha from that story that Jesus tells about who God is um, and that really helped me understand this in a different way is what that story tells us. Again, this is Jesus telling us about who God is and who we are. It's the most concise, descriptive story about who God is and who we are. I think it mirrors the story of the Garden of Eden, but I won't even develop that right now. The first thing that jumped out in, in a way that helped me make sense of this is what Jesus is saying in that parable is that there's not one way to be lost from God. There's two. There's not one way to be lost from God. There's two. There's two archetypes, two paths that take us away from God. And I think this is 
Once you understand this, you go back through the four Gospels and realize Jesus is saying this all the time. So in Luke 15, when the, the story of the prodigal son starts, it very clearly says there are two different groups there listening, and one son represents each group. So there's kind of the wayward group on one side. The, it specifically mentions tax collectors, prostitutes, and just it's, it's, it's all the kind of those that society has rejected and oftentimes have rejected God. So they're, they're represented by the younger brother in the story. But then it says there's also a group listening, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And so one son represents each one of these groups. And here's kind of the amazing thing. The, the, the more prominent, the more uh, celebrated character is the younger prodigal. And this is the like very obvious form of being lost, right? The younger, pro, the younger, the younger son. We don't know anything about the previous relationship with him and the dad in this kind of fictitious story from Jesus teaching about God and us. But what we do know is that this younger prodigal says, whatever this thing is in the house, I don't want it anymore. I don't want this. I think true life, my true self, my best self, it's out there in the world somewhere. So he says, dad, I'm out. Like I want my inheritance right now, which is to basically say, I want you dead. I want, I want my share of who you are. And then I want to go live my own life. Right. And so famously he goes and does that and probably has fun for a little bit, but ends up in a, you know, really beat up, fractured, probably diseased kind of a place. And so that's, that's one climax of the story when he finally hits the end of his rope and decides to come home and famously is received, um, you know, in the most loving kinds of ways, right? The great, great part of the story, the younger prodigal who leaves home. But it, so to the wayward group, that would be really encouraging. Like, wow, I can, part of my story can be that I flicked off God and did what I wanted, lived my own life, committed class A, class B, class C, whatever, and God can fully receive me, right? That would have been so encouraging. But the shocker of the story is not actually that. I mean, it's always wonderfully shocking that God received us back home. But the actual shocker of that story is not that. The shocker of the story is that the good boy, the one who's at home, the one that represents the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the good boy also is lost. Not just like a little bit off, lost, right? So when the younger prodigal comes home, the kind of true colors of the older son come out. He had always seemed dutiful. He'd always seemed obedient. But what it turns out is that he had kind of an arrangement in his head that had never been verbalized, that I keep the rules and father does what I want him to do, right? We have this relationship. Father tells me what to do. I do it. And then I'm owed, you know, uh, uh, the father's allegiance for this. And so when the father does something that's unexpected and doesn't fit within the value system of the older son, the older son is furious. So the older son does something that ends up being just as devastatingly embarrassing to the fathers, the younger brothers. The younger brother said, I want my inheritance. He left. But now there's a party happening. The whole village is there. In front of everybody, the older son tells off the father and says, no, you don't get to do this. And then walks out the back door, pouting, and um, embarrasses the dad in front of everybody. And what's kind of cool is the same God, represented by the father that goes, receives the younger brother, goes out the back door now and chases after the older brother. So it doesn't treat him any differently. Comes out and chases the older brother and says, Everything I have is yours. You've always had my love. You've always had my heart. Why does your younger brother? Why does your younger brother coming home need to reflect on our relationship? Right? I love you. And this is where the story shockingly ends. Right? The the older brother is unwilling to hear any of the overtures from the father. Rejects the father's initiation of him. And the story ends with the younger brother being fully restored at home. The older brother being out in the backyard, arms crossed, saying, "Uh, uh-uh, I ain't doing this." Uh uh-uh, I ain't doing this. I am not ready to restore this relationship. So you got these two groups, right? The the the, prodig- the younger prodigals, the waywards, going, wow, God can forgive us and welcome us all the way back home. And you've got the teachers of the law and the Pharisees going, did he just do that? Did he just 
Did he just hint at the fact that we are just as lost as the young, the younger prodigal? Did he just hint at the fact that like the story is open still, that we are the ones who are actually not made right with God? Right? This, this, this would have been the real shocker of the story. All right, now let me put a pause there for a moment and come back to this passage we just read in Luke 5. This is the group I believe Jesus is talking to with this sequence of things that he's saying. See, we covered this last week, and so if you weren't here, you probably want to go back one verse or a couple verses. Um, it's, it's in Matthew five seventeen. But the, heart, the interpretive heart of this passage is when Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill it. See, Jesus is saying to the Jewish people who have kind of their complete orientation about God has been God, kind of what I had, that God gives commandments, we follow those commandments. That's what saves you is following the commandments. What, what Jesus is saying is like, I'm not saying the commandments are important, but I'm saying that can't save you. When you look to the commands to save you, when you look to obedience to save you, you're actually looking to yourself, not to God. And that is not just semantics. That is not just semantics to say you're looking to obedience, you're looking to the rules instead of to me to be saved. Uh, I'm going to come back and forth if I can between the prodigal sons. So there's two things about that older prodigal that were so illuminating to me, right? So I think what Jesus is saying is that the law itself can't save you. In fact, if you look to obedience as salvation, it's dangerous in a couple of ways. Um, these are the things that are most prominent about the story to me about the prodigal sons. For one, the thing that's most prominent about that older brother is that he is completely joyless in the whole story. He has no joy, no life, no vitality. And this is one of the distinctions. When you look to obedience as your God rather than God as your God, when you look to the rules to save you rather than Jesus to save you, it creates this mechanical kind of check the boxes, joyless kind of relationship with God. Because the whole operating system inside of you is what's the rule and I'm going to keep the rule and then that's what makes me feel like I'm accepted and um, I have the love of God. And again, this is where, this is not just semantics to say it's the, the different. Th- th- these are two different ways of being in the world. To version one, the one that I think leads to a distorted view of God and ourselves. Version one says, I obey the rules so that God will accept me. I keep the commands so that God will love me. All right? That is what I think Jesus is condemning, both in um, Matthew 5 and in Luke 15, the prodigal sons. The revert, just reversing that language changes your entire orientation to say, I am loved by God. So therefore, I will obey. I am fully accepted by God. Therefore, I will be serious about God's commands. That is not just playing with words. That is two totally different ways of showing up in the world. And the first one, and that's what I'm saying, is the danger of joylessness. And that first one, there is a there's this sense, this deficit inside of you. When you are rule-based, you will never trust that you've done enough to get God's approval. You'll never feel confident that you've done enough. And passages like Matthew 5 double down on that, right? If you think you're doing enough, Jesus reminds you. If you even had a thought, you're not doing enough, right? Which he's actually trying to take this all the way home. Right? He's trying to take this point all the way home. When you think you have to earn God's approval and love, there is this, there is this inner haunting voice that says, I'm never doing enough. God doesn't actually love me. God doesn't actually accept me. And the 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 joylessness is becomes contagious then right i mean we have all been around these people right who like on the outside it seems like they actually follow all the rules right i mean based on conduct they should be the best of the best and yet they're intolerable right have you ever been around religious people who keep all the rules and they're absolutely intolerable to be around that's the older brother that is what jesus is warning against here again the the point is not 
don't care about how you live in the world. But there is something that Jesus consistently warns about that when you put the central focus of your efforts around the rules themselves, around the commands, which then reflects the way you view God, that you have to do this in order to achieve God's blessings um, or God's favor, it produces this joylessness inside of you. And to the, to, to the contrast, what we always talk about, if, if God really is love, if your starting point in the world is that I'm beloved, I'm a beloved daughter or child, and I show up in the world from there, I mean, that's just, it's two different kind of people. It's two different kind of people. That's what I think Jesus is getting at in Matthew 5. It's what I think he's getting in the prodigal son. The other big danger that I think the prodigal son shows us about the danger of kind of the older brother form of lostness is that rules become a way that you control God. Rules become a way. Keeping the rules is how you control God. And a lot of this have internalized this without even realizing it. We make a pact with God. We say, fine, I'm going to keep all the rules because I believe that's what you want from me. But then in return, you have to make my life work. You need to rain blessings on me, right? You need to protect me from bad things that happen. You need to answer these prayers that are being prayed in honest petition, but assumed need to be actualized because you're, it, from your perspective, you're keeping all the rules, right? And um, I've seen a lot of people have faith and lose faith in a whole bunch of different kinds of ways, but that's some kind of losing faith when you didn't even realize that's how you viewed God in kind of this transactional way and how you viewed yourself as I keep the rules. And then when life actually happens, and life sucks a lot of times, right? It's hot, like one of the things that's just after what we read here, it's, Jesus talks about how the rain comes on the righteous and the unrighteous, right? That like you don't get spared from the penalties of this world, from the hardship of this world, just because you're in a relationship with God. It's just that you also happen to have the triune God who's up close to you supporting you in the middle of it. But the, the rain comes on the righteous and the unrighteous. When you have this arrangement that you've come to understand of who God is and who you are based around rules and obedience, when life gets hard and doesn't work the way you want, you end up doing what the older brother does. You say, this isn't how it was supposed to go. This is not how it's supposed to go. You're not keeping your end of the deal, God. You're not keeping your end of the deal. And it's almost inevitable that you're going to walk out the back door, and I'm using front door and back door because right, the younger prodigal just heads off for the whatever the city has waiting for him, the, the younger prodigal is going out the other side. The older prodigal is going out the other side. But it's almost in the inevitable response when your relationship with God is based not on love and, and this deep connection, but instead based on I keep the rules, satisfy God's you know, requirements of me, that it's inevitable to think that God has to do what I want God to do. And when it doesn't go that way, it screws you up big time. It screws you up big time. That was so instrumental for me to, to be able to take the story of the prodigal sons, which of course I had heard growing up, but I had never really internalized, and bring it back to Matthew 5. Because what I realized from my own story when I was veering away in high school and college, one of the reasons I didn't really want to come back to church is because I, I thought the only way to be a Christian was the older brother version. And I just didn't, I was certainly a younger brother in high school and college, but I just, it, it didn't feel like some kind of liberation to get saved. It felt like some kind of a like, death sentence to have to come back and be like all the other older brothers, you know, who live like that. And so when I realized in that prodigal that Jesus wasn't saying younger brothers should become older brothers, in fact, that's probably one of the reasons the younger brother didn't want to come back home. It's because he's an annoying older brother. 
his self-righteous older brother, right? Um, like that's probably the hardest part of what he had to get past was to come home. When I realized that Jesus wasn't saying to younger brothers that you're supposed to become older brothers, just like he's not saying to older brothers become younger brothers. Like that's not the way to access God's love is you have to screw up royally and then be forgiven. That's one way. That doesn't have to be the only way to do it. Like they're not, they're not the balance to each other. They represent two different ways of being lost. And so the last part of that story that is so powerful and I think is kind of the interpretive key to this whole thing in, in Matthew 5. What I think Jesus is telling us in the, in the, in the pro, parable of the prodigal sons is there's two ways to be lost, but only one way to be found. Only one. Even though they look so different, and they are different, like how the younger prodigals is sinning and how the older prodigals sinning, how they're rejecting God, look so different. It is really amazing that to be saved is the exact same thing for both of them. Like, what did, what, really, the opportunity is there for both of them. When the younger prodigal comes, he never even gets his words out. The father's there and receives him, right? What does the younger prodigal have to do to be saved? He just has to let himself be saved. <laughs> he just has to let the father put the robe around him and say, and that's, a, that's an Old Testament metaphor, being clothed in righteousness. He just has to let the father surround him and say, you're home now. You're home now. All, to all my people, I'm saying, you all might have thoughts, but this young son is home now right? And you now treat him as somebody who's fully restored. That's all the younger prodigal has to do is receive the gift of God's love. What did the older prodigal have to do? He probably thinks he knows what he has to do. He has to earn off his debt, right? Because that's the mentality of those of us who have the older brother. But what did the older brother need to do? He just needed to let the father restore him in the backyard. And that's what the father would have done for him too, is put the robe around him and say, I understand how that happened. But he would repeat the words, everything I have is yours. You... Every, we could have done a party for you every day of the week, right? That's how I think of you, right? That's how I see you. Two very different ways of rejecting the Father, but ultimately, receiving the gift of God's love at home is what restores them both. And I think that is what Jesus is getting at here in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. I think what he's doing, he's already started the Sermon on the Mount by telling all the outcasts that they're blessed, Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who have been persecuted. Blessed are those who mourn and lament at what they have faced, right? Uh, blessed are those who seek righteousness and justice. He's already kind of blessed that group and said, you are all the way welcome. Now what I think he's doing is balancing like he always does. You'll see this over and over in the Gospels. He's balancing that with the invitation to the religious people to be saved by him. But he's, he's using logic to do this. He's saying, not only am I telling you you can't be saved by the rules, let me, let, me, let me say in the starkest ways, even when you think you're keeping the rules, you're not actually fully keeping the rules, right? If that's how you get saved, then if you've ever had a fleeting thought, right, then right, I mean, you can't look to that for salvation. So, so this is the interesting thing. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law always have the same invitation that the wayward folks do. It's just harder for them. It's just harder for them because the way that they've come to view God and the way that they've come to view themselves. And so I do think, unsurprisingly, the answer to all of this is love, um, that God is love. And even, a, it's, it's interesting because, you know, the sermon, we're looking at these in excerpts, um, but, you know, you have to take it as a whole. The very next thing Jesus is going to do when that turns into chapter 6, the very next thing Jesus is going to do is teach in the Lord's Prayer, which, of course, starts with, Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be your name, right, in Again, I, I see. I always see these through the lens of the prodigal son. When when 
when Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, what I think Jesus is telling us is to match that up with the longest teaching he ever gave about who God is. When we pray our, God, our Father who art in heaven, we're supposed to be thinking about that Father that's at the home of the two prodigals. That Father that is defined by love. That Father that loves both children, the one who goes out the front door and the one who goes out the back door. That love is the orientation of who God is. And that even when we see things that seem otherwise harsh, it's still to be seen through the lens of love. In fact, I'll just say one more last thing here and then we'll wrap this up. I, I came back, so I, I'm honest when I say this brings me back to some of the most painful thing, ways of coming to see God. This actually is one of my favorite passages now, <laughs> believe it or not, especially because I want to emphasize this, that even though you can't be saved by rules, it doesn't mean that there's not a way to live right? Jesus starts us by saying, you're salt and light, right? Like Jesus has an expectation of us that as we come into a deep sense of our belovedness, we'll show up in the world in a certain kind of a way and it'll affect people. Um, one of the things that is a thread through this, I think Jesus is reminding us that the law can't save us, that even when you think you're good, there's, there, there's deeper kind of stuff. But some of my favorite imagery about justice is in this section right now. Some of my favorite imagery about the sacredness of human beings, of of protecting and affirming the personhood of every person we come in contact with. Uh, actually, do you mind bringing it back up, Ken? Um, you know, and, and just as a reminder of like where love love takes us. Um, uh, yeah, go back a little bit more towards the beginning of it. I want to. I want to just. I'm just going to tag two two words in this that I think are really really interesting. So um, closer to the beginning of the reading where it gets into the. Let me find the actual first word. Does it talk about Raka? That's verse 24. Man, I need glasses. This is embarrassing. That's 24 where it talks about Raka, right? Yeah, so can you get to verse 24, Ken? Can you, or is it, is, it, is it frozen? Is it not on there? Okay. Um, well, you, you, you all are good students who have your Bible, right? So, uh, so look, in, uh, look in verse 24. So, you know, he's, he's saying if um, you shall not murder, anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But... This is so deep. He says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell. Raka, it's this wild uh, Aramaic word that is like the deepest level of human insult you can come up with. To say Raka to somebody is to say you mean nothing. You are worthless as a human being. You're worthless as a human being. I don't actually think Jesus is playing when he says it. Like He's like, yeah, for sure you should murder, right? That's for sure. But I'll tell you what. It's almost in the same league of murder when you treat people like they're nothing. When you, when you attack somebody's personhood, both individual level or systemically, corporately, that it, man, man, that's worthy of the fires of hell when you treat somebody like that. Right? When he goes to, um, in the adultery section, we did have that, right, Ken? Um, uh, verse 27 there that was up. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't actually say anyone who looks at a married woman. He says anyone who looks at a woman lustfully. This is not just about moral purity codes. This is about protecting the personhood, right? He's saying when you look at a woman, when a man especially, or anybody looks at a woman and objectifies her and wants her, that's dehumanizing. 
It's dehumanizing. And in that society where men had all the power, it wasn't just personally dehumanizing. It put a woman, if she was seen as an object of lust, who, who God knows what could have happened, right? Uh, I mean, this is, this is a fierce protectiveness of women that Jesus is saying when he does this. Right? All I, what I'm trying to say here is that it, this can sound like semantics. It's not. Jesus is saying, look, the law will never save you into go down that road takes you in a distorted view of God that's going to screw you up, a distorted view of yourself that's going to screw you up, and your daily life is going to be screwed up. You're going to be joyless. You're going to be making these pacts with a God that isn't even the real God that's going to leave you upside down when things go right. Like, looking to the law to save you is bad, bad, bad news, right? Looking to the God who is a God of love, who calls you God's own and sends you out into the world of salt and light, that's how you need to orient yourself. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter how you live, right? Like, if you say you're a follower of God and then call somebody Raka or show up in the world like they're Raka, no, 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 no. That ain't going to fly for children of God. Mm-mm-mm. You you, you objectify a woman and, and start to want to use her for your own bit. Mm, no, no, no. Trust me, that, that ain't not going to fly. You're, you're talking fires of hell when you start talking that kind of stuff, right? So it's like nuance but not, right? At the end of the day, it is a God of love who sends us into the world as love which, of course, is the great commandment. Experience the love of God. It's your heart, soul, mind, strength. Go and love your neighbor as yourself. That's ultimately what this is always coming to. But if your starting point is a, a vengeful God who's a God of commands and who's going to bless you when you're doing good and punish you when you're not, and you just hope that you know that all gets absolved because the anger of God punished his son so that you don't have to be punished. I mean, just the whole thing will take you down a road that's just not helpful. As opposed to see it as a God who's like the God that Jesus talks about in Luke 15. A God who just is always there. One of the, I keep saying, I'm, I'm being very Baptist right now. This is my final closing. Uh, but one of the things I love about the prodigal son story is that both sons leave, but God never moves. Uh, God, God doesn't adjust God's self because of their sin. God doesn't say, uh, well, now I'm in the, well, I don't know, taking the metaphor too far. I'm in the, I'm in the back room. You got to come find me. You got to prove that you're worthy. God, like, there's just never anything that changes about God in the story. One son does this and throws a temptation. One son does this and throws a temptation. One son sins this way. The son sins this way. God's just always there waiting. It almost, this is where the phrase grace is beyond what we can expect, understand really does become real to me. It's like, yeah, you're, you're going to sin in your ways that you do. And then God's waiting for you to come home and to be robed in righteousness, restored, and sent out into the world in salt and light. I actually think seeing God like that and seeing ourselves like that, that's not just about good theology. That is, that is, that changes the way you live. Seeing that that's who God is, seeing that's who we are, changes the way we think of being salt and light, where we are reflecting the love of the Father who is loving us. Will you join me in prayer? Mm. Oh, God, I... In prayer, feel the, just I'm going to go to the same place that I just started this, that how we see you shapes everything. And I really am convinced that there's nothing you care more about that we see you correctly. I think you can think about you care more about that even than how we see ourselves correctly. Because if we see you correctly, it will translate into seeing ourselves correctly. When we have, and we all do, when we pick up and internalize these distorted versions of you, these... Um, imbalanced views of you. Maybe it carries part of what's true, but then it's taken to an extremity that creates incredible danger. When we internalize views of you that don't match how you have taught us who you are, at least according to the Christian tradition in our sacred text, uh, it does so much unnecessary damage to us. And then, if, if I'm being just Pentecostal for a moment, we know that 
the evil one gets more glee from a bad view of God than anything else. That's why you teach us in the garden account that that's all the serpent can do is try to just take them a little bit off course in how they came to understand you. They knew who you were, but got tricked into thinking of you as something else. So God, I think in this moment, I'm just really, I mean, we looked at this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, and there's a lot in there to think about, but I just think more than anything, I'm just feeling the need to just kind of hold space for being healed from the damaged ways we've come to see you. And if we can just kind of step into the way you, the God in the flesh, talked about God as the father in the home that's defined by love, that restores the younger prodigal and the older prodigal, the ones who control God by walking away and the ones who try to control God by keeping the rules. We all are in need of salvation. But not just salvation, restoration, uh, being reminded of who we are in you. Right? We actually can't, th- we have no chance of being salt and light in the world if we're not regularly coming back home to the light, being cleared off of all the mistakes and ways we defied you that week. I mean, even those who love us, those of us who are most surrendered to you every week, we're bouncing back and forth between younger prodigal sins and older prodigal sins. We're constantly in need of restoration from you. And then you send us out into the world, not with speeches and well-crafted slogans, but as people who have experienced the light and love of God. I'm convinced that counts for more than anything. When we have an authentic, sincere connection to the God of love, we can go out and love in a different kind of way. We can go out and take on the systems and structures and principalities and powers and strongholds that create barriers to that love. And we can be salt and light in ways we never even knew we could. I am convinced that all comes from this immersion into the light and love of who God is. So as we respond in worship, I pray, A, that we would see you clearly. B, that would be healed of the ways that we've internalized dangerous views, incomplete, imbalanced views of you. C, that we would enter into the light and love of you so that we can be sent out into the world as salt and light. So meet us here as we worship in your name we pray. Amen. This is why I became a pastor, honestly. There's nothing I want more for myself, for my family, for my church family than to truly, in a transformative way, know who God is. To live with a deep sense of who you are. And that even when you stray from that, as you inevitably will, to know what it means to come home and to live from that place. So I was going to say let's stand for benediction, but I think everybody's standing already. So uh, if I could do a quick reminder, if you haven't heard this, two weeks from today, uh, we're going to do a new members class, just a one-time class in here afterwards. We'll have lunch and stuff. So... If you're interested in learning more about River City or we're totally want members to come too and meet the new members. So that's two weeks from today. If you can let me know for food's sake, if you're coming and for a benediction, I would offer up that image, the defining image from the story of the prodigal son. When the father wraps a robe around him, that image is used over and over and over again in the Old Testament. It starts in the Garden of Eden when God wraps um, garments that God makes um, around Adam and Eve. 
And so the idea is that it's not just an intellectual, say you're sorry, you get forgiven. It's this immersive restoration of who you are. And I think this is very tied to being salt and light. I don't think you can be salt and light. I really don't think so. I don't think you can be salt and light in the world without constantly coming back to the light that is the love of God. So this is the circle we find ourselves in. Coming home, being clothed, internalizing it in a deep and transformational level, going out into the world and being the same. So may you take deep comfort in being clothed in the robes of God's love. And all God's people said, love y'all.